Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Michael Koenig is the Chief Operating Officer at Time Doctor, a remote company made up of 150 people spread across 40 countries. He was brought on in May of 2020 to operationalize the company during a phase of explosive growth and to scale the organization. Michael is a passionate promoter of remote work. He got his first taste of it as an early employee at Automatic, the makers of website platform WordPress, where he spent six years helping increase their market share to power over 35% of websites. Through his years of leadership experience at Automatic, Time Doctor, and Suite, he participates in, as a tech store's mentor and serves as a board member and advisor to the startups and nonprofits. So, Michael, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for having me on. Delighted to be here. Yeah, I would love to, to kind of go back into some of your past, and then I want to talk a little bit about what you've kind of pulled from being involved in Techstars as well. But why don't you just walk us through kind of how you got to here, where your career started, and what got you here? Wow. Yeah. It's been quite a uh, serendipitous route, to be honest. Um, And what I mean by that is I studied philosophy in college, which, as one of my friends says, prepares you for everything, but also prepares you for nothing. (laughs) And so when I got out of college, uh, I I played the bass guitar and I ended up falling into uh, a band with two other venture capitalists and uh, some other famous folks. And it was an 80s punk cover band. I hated the music. So they named it the Michael Koenig Experience, despite me. And uh, they liked me and, and took me under their wing. One became my mentor and, and he got me into tech. So going from philosophy to tech, I mean, it's, it's pretty serendipitous there, uh, just in terms of making that connection and finding that first mentor to, to bring me in. And then beyond that, it's I started off in early stage tech companies and had the opportunity to wear many hats, which is something that you always get to do in, in those early companies and early days where everyone just needs to, it's all hands on deck. Everyone needs to do what they, they have to do. And I was fortunate to, again, learn from some great folks along the way, go through a couple of uh, M&A activities on, on both the sell and buy side. And uh, eventually I I landed at a company called Automatic, which as you mentioned, makes WordPress. And that was a real journey in terms of being a very early employee and helping build this company that was entirely remote. I think when we joined, I was 20 or, or we were 30 people, maybe spread across 25 locations without an office. And so seeing that company and being part of the journey to build it to a couple hundred people across a couple hundred locations and, and help turn that into a juggernaut for web platform, excuse me, for web publishing was a, a real eye opener and uh, started to, to really train me and prepare me to move into that COO role. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got my first taste. Uh, you mentioned Techstars. The 
way I joined Automatic was through the acquisition of a company called Intense Debate, which came through Techstars the very first year back in 2007 in Boulder, Colorado. And Techstars is a mentorship program. It provides some initial capital, but is really about helping develop the business model, helping tell the story and, and helping sometimes first-time entrepreneurs, sometimes experienced entrepreneurs really build out their company. And so it's something that I've been a part of since 2007. And in 2014, I had the opportunity to join a company that I had been mentoring first as their, their VP of business development. So I have a lot of experience on the the go-to-market side. And then later as the chief operating officer there. And so that was really my first time entering into the COO role, quite eye-opening. And again, <laughs> lots of serendipitous connections and, and folks that have been really generous with their time over the years to, to help teach me. So what do you think that you you picked up then, I guess, through your time? And, and by the way, quick question on, on studying philosophy in, in university. Mm. Are you sure you studied philosophy? <laughs> ah, right? I don't know. It's possible that I'm, I was a brain in a vat being right? stimulated. Are you I, sure you were at college? Oh, yeah. right? Are you even sure you were Am at college? Am I sure? Oh my um, goodness. Who knows? Who right? knows? That'll, that'll keep you awake tonight now. All right. So, so making that transition and, and getting into early stage tech and then um, some of the experience at Automatic, what do you think the experience that you pulled out of Automatic was that you carry with you today? And then I want to go into your first COO role before we go over to Time Doctor. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of different experiences. One of the things that has stuck with me though, and I'm very fortunate to uh, call the the former COO, uh, or excuse me, CEO, a mentor, was those early stage companies are quite turbulent. It can be a roller coaster where you have lots of ups and downs. And one of the things that I pulled away from Automatic was the steadiness of the leadership, <laughs> where you knew that if there was a fire, these, these folks could put it out. And we just had full confidence that we were in good care. And that stuck with me over the past decade in terms of the role of leadership in providing that stability and keeping everyone focused. And so that's part that I think is applicable regardless of the stage of company that you're in. And then certainly there were lots of lessons learned from scaling and and growing the company and and being in really tight competition uh, with the other blogging and website platforms out there. But Mm. if the first thing that comes to mind there is just the steadiness of the leadership. And I, I asked Tony, the former CEO, hey, how'd you guys do it? And Tony reminded me, he said, it's all about focusing on the long-term strategy. And when things get turbulent or you see a new upstart within your field who has great, very cool features, they're getting tons of press, or say you lose a big customer, it's just stay steady, focus on the long-term vision. Let's not get distracted. And let's just remember what we're doing. Our strategy is sound. Our tactics are great. 
we've built something amazing and we just need to stay focused on where we're going in the long term. Those are, that's a huge lesson. And, and it's interesting that you brought it up so early as we were talking, because I was thinking when you mentioned Techstars about Brad Feld, Brad has spoken a lot about the, the bipolar nature of entrepreneurs and how so many entrepreneurs are manic depressive. And um, Brad has, has struggled with bipolar. I'm bipolar. There's a lot of, of medical history around uh, the medical community calls bipolar disorder, the CEO disease. So there, it's so many of these entrepreneurs are, um, and I don't think it's a disease. I think it's actually one of our strengths. I think the mania is why people quit their job and join us. But so it's interesting that you saw that, that team and the steadiness and you brought that with you. So let's flip over from, from there and then talk about um, this, your first time in as a COO. So what was that like in, in getting involved with an early stage company as a COO and starting in your first role and transitioning into a COO? Yeah, the, the initial role of, of, business development was something that I was very comfortable in and had been essentially training for over the past decade. And so that was a very easy transition. Um, In terms of some of the operational aspects that wasn't solely focused on the go-to-market, I'd had exposure to legal through contract negotiations, through understanding different data privacy laws, things of that nature, which were were pretty nascent at the time. Um, But I hadn't had a whole lot of experience in HR, for instance. I had had great people that had taught me and I had seen HR working at scale. It was very much a trial by fire, but I had seen it done well. So I knew where I needed to get us to. And it was, here's the, here's the, uh, the end goal. And then it was kind of like, all right, well, what are the tactics to, to actually make that happen, to create an amazing employee experience or to make sure that we're compliant with all of the different applicable regulatory items um, and looking at, okay, what's the financial health? And certainly uh, that was something that I, I'd had exposure to previously uh, running different p But when you take that mantle of leadership and, and the responsibility for all of the GNA, that was definitely eye-opening. And again, I just leaned back on, on my mentors and said, hey, how do I do this? And uh, really just what's what's the guidance like? So I was very fortunate where it wasn't a particularly rocky transition. I had been very embedded in the company to date and had fostered a great relationship with the CEO. We had gotten to the point where there was really implicit trust between us. And so that certainly made things much easier where it was, okay, you have certain domain expertise. I've seen you operate. I know that you have this experience. I'm not entirely strong in this part. And I need to kind of remove myself from those day-to-day operations so I can be that figurehead. I'm speaking on behalf of the CEO. And I think that also made it uh, an easy transition as well. You mentioned something that I thought was interesting, and it seemed like, uh, and I may be paraphrasing, but it seemed like you felt like you needed to have some of the hands-on experience to understand that business area of HR versus just the theoretical experience. Do you think that a COO 
can actually function well as a COO without having been through some of the battles without having had like, can they just study it in an MBA program and come out and say, Hey, I can be a COO now, or do they need to go through some of the actual practical hands-on to get it? Well, I, I can't really speak to um, an MBA coming out. I think that there's certainly something to be said for having that firsthand experience, but more importantly, it's about hiring the right people and bringing on an experienced team who you can hand over the reins and, and say, okay, in the instance of HR, there's no way that I'm going to get the practical experience that a seasoned HR leader has. And so while I may be able to kind of fake it <laughs> until we make it and get to that point, uh, it's certainly, there's no substitute for bringing on people that are better and smarter than you. And then it, it becomes more along the lines of managing and making sure they have all of the resources they need mm -hmm. and, and an environment in which they can, they can operate and execute and take risks and have the psychological safety to, to fail. Um, and so really it, it kind of, you can only get so much operating experience before you need to bring in a specialist. Yeah. And you mentioned leaning on some of your mentors. So how would you lean on them? How would you reach out to them? What would you say? And how did you find good mentors? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, in terms of, I come back to that serendipity, but that's not always repeatable. In, if you're looking for mentors, what I found to be very effective was to know specifically what I was looking for advice on. And more often than not, people were very willing to hop on a call with me because I think that most COOs that I've spoken with have had that similar situation where they were um, a beneficiary of, of having great mentors to share that advice. And, and that's also part of uh, the Techstars ethos of, of give first um, of that mentorship. And so in terms of finding those mentors, it was about positioning myself to one, be around those really experienced folks. Techstars was certainly a phenomenal platform in, to, to be able to meet folks. Um, beyond that though, it, it's almost like cold calling sending a message on LinkedIn, guessing email addresses, Cameron at COO Alliance, right? And reaching out, but with a very pointed and specific question of, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. hey, look, I'm going through X. This is the stage of my company. Here's what I'm thinking. And could you even take five minutes to review this and, and just respond with, two sentences, I'd be grateful for it. And more often than not, people were, were willing to, to give me those few, few minutes and, and get back to me with, with good nuggets. It's of, so perfect structured that it's, it's almost impossible for someone not to respond when you structure it in such an easy way and, and such a short ask and you frame it in such a good way that, yeah, it's hard. And I think you're right that everyone has, everyone is successful, has had someone that has helped us get there as well. Right. So and I think part of being human is, is the desire to help others. You know, I think we have that hardwired in us that we want to just help others as well. So I think there's something there. 
So let's let's um, change direction a little bit and tell us about Time Doctor. What does Time Doctor do, and and how did you get involved in that organization? And then I want to uh, I'm going to go around in a couple circles here in a second. <laughs> okay, I like circles. Um, well, look, Time Doctor is a time tracking and productivity uh, software as a service. In terms of what we do, is we give both employees and companies visibility into where they're spending their time. And so there's very much a mentality of you can't change what you don't know. And when I started using it, it was quite eye-opening where I was spending my time. Mm -hmm. And then also as a, as a COO, I I was able to track the categories uh, of work that I was doing. So for instance, if I was spending too much time on legal, well, that's uh, not necessarily the best use of my time. And maybe it's time to bring on someone to augment what, what I'm doing. And so time, time doctor is very much a work insights company that shows you what you're doing and how to improve. So in terms of how we got uh, connected I've been a, a passionate promoter of, of remote work. And as I mentioned, automatic is, is completely remote. And this then was the circle we were the, going in, the by com- the way, this, this yeah, was the circle okay, we were going okay. back to. So it's perfect. It's fantastic. All right. Perfect. And for me, when I joined automatic, it was really freeing in that I could now control the environment and the four walls of where I was working. And that became quite eye-opening. Started having different work-life balance. Uh, I could move around the country without fear of losing my job, but also the opportunities that it created for folks outside of the United States to work for a San Francisco-based tech company. And so remote has that power of breaking down those geographic barriers where you don't need to be within a 25 mile radius of a headquarters in order to have an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that was really eye opening for me in terms of just the different cultures that I got to interact with. Um, I, I hadn't really thought of it like this, but last week I was talking with one of our team members at Time Doctor who's located in Turkey. And one of the great things he said about working at a remote company was he gets to interact with people from all different countries and walks of life and and cultures. And he likened it to traveling the world in every conversation. Mm, And I thought that was so interesting to put uh, in that frame. Because when else would I have had the opportunity to day in, day out, work with someone in Sofia, Bulgaria, or in Japan, Tokyo? And so I found it so rewarding. And I always consider it, uh, don't discriminate based on geolocation. Take the best talent wherever they are. Let them work from wherever they are. What year did you start at Automatic? This was in 2008. So it was so pretty. It I'm, was pretty early in the. It was pretty early in the whole digital nomad, you know, or the re- remote work um, space. I mean, Wi-Fi had been around. The internet had been around for like ten-ish years. The Wi-Fi had been around for um, 
probably about seven years, seven, eight years. So, but, but the ability to have like laptops and digital access and be global and zoom was still new, or I don't think zoom was around then, but Skype was, was early, early. Um, you were pretty early in. So what did you learn from being a remote company back then that still works today? Cause I think people are just learning it now and, and you're, you're 13 years into being remote. Yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. It's as I think about, <clears throat> excuse me, the success of automatic automatic is rooted in open source uh, technology. So WordPress itself started off as an open source project. And if you think about how open source works, you have a lot of people from around the world contributing towards the same project. And that happens remotely. That happens asynchronously. It's, it's very rare that you get uh, to interact with those folks that you're developing a product with. And so there's, a, there's an inherent tool set that you use and, and mode of operating. And this is back, as you mentioned, like before Skype. So we were all in IRC and working together on that. And so for automatic it was very natural mm. to continue on with that open source framework. Uh, Matt Mullenweg, the CEO, uh, was a pioneer and continues to be a pioneer in remote work and really saw the value of being able to collaborate with people, the best minds, the best minds in the world, and to collaborate and build great products. And oftentimes, especially with the early team predating my arrival, they hadn't met each other. And, and I recall a story that uh, had been shared, I think, by Matt, where there was a, a developer, Nikolai, who had been working in Sofia. And they all thought that Nikolai was 28 years old. And then that first time, years in to having worked together, they met and Nikolai was 17 years old. Wow. So it was right. And think about that. This is a, a massive uh, piece of software that, that changed the internet. Yeah. And I can't think of another instance where I mean, Nikolai must've been 14 when he started working on WordPress, where you have a 14 year old working with really seasoned entrepreneurs and seasoned mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, engineers. I mean, think about just the interview process. Uh, Nikolai's resume was probably non-existent. He would have been up. washed out immediately. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And he became and continues to be one of the, the most important core contributors to WordPress and to building automatic. What was so it like? It was very interesting in that. What was it like getting to work with Matt? I mean, Matt was one of the early stage kind of um, uber successful entrepreneurs in the, in the digital space. What was it like working with him? The lesson that I took away from Matt was, or rather is his patience. <laughs> Matt is so disciplined in the long game, in the big picture. And thinking about what he wants to be as a company, and importantly, what he doesn't want to be. There 
were a lot of potential business models that he could have pursued. And I'm, I don't know his mind necessarily, but this was my, my read. There were lots of business models that he could have pursued around WordPress. Yeah. But if you think about the nature of WordPress and, and creating the freedom to publish and having uh, the ability to build a site and get on the internet and have that outlet and that in some cases, freedom of press within authoritarian countries, there was a real focus on the product versus maybe becoming uh, a hosting site mm-hmm. right? that mm-hmm. could have certainly been a lucrative opportunity that he could have pursued. But Matt very early on said, we're not a hosting company. We're a software company and we're here to democratize publishing. And the thing that I took away from him, I mean, WordPress is now, gosh, must be 15 or or 16 years old. Mm -hmm. And the software is never going away. And his patience and his focus on the long game was truly remarkable, especially as he focused uh, and, and the team focused on rolling out complementary products that contributed to the ecosystem. These weren't necessarily products that were intended to generate profit or generate revenue, but were rather products that contributed to that ecosystem. And so I always took away that patience and focus on the long game that, mm-hmm. that he's had. And, and certainly some of those products that you know, maybe six or seven years into their their existence, there were uh, monetization opportunities. But he didn't start off with the concept of, well, I'm going to build this and it's going to bring in X dollars of revenue. It was more along the lines of, this is going to enrich the ecosystem. Maybe there's an opportunity to make money off of it at some point, but really it's just, this is going to be good in the long run. Yeah. And I think, I think that is the core of, of what made him successful or what made it successful. It's funny that you mentioned the hosting because I was going to mention that one of my very first clients that I coached for two years, I coached the senior leadership team. It was the CEO and the leadership team at Media Temple and Media Temple was the big WordPress would send 10% of Media Temple's clients. So I coached Damien Selfors for two years, the CEO there. And he was always talking about the the partnership with Media Temple or with um, uh, with WordPress and how well it went. And I was always in awe that he could have ever pulled that partnership off. But he's like, yeah, we we were both just small companies. So I like talked to Matt, and Matt thought it was good, and Matt wanted to do this, and I wanted to do that, and there we go. All right, go back into the early stage tech world and the fact that you were wearing many hats in your roles. What do you? What allows someone to succeed when they're wearing all these different hats versus the people that fail at it? Because it's it's not everybody that can run at that pace and manage the different complexities and have all the different hats and and actually be successful. What do you think made you successful there? Or what, what are the lessons that you can maybe impart uh, that'll help people who are in that kind of jack of all trades, master of none, early stage role? I'd say the biggest lesson is around, and I keep coming back to this focus where when you're early stage, you really are fighting to be alive every single day. And it's easy to have lots of fires that pop up 
and can consume you. However, not all fires are going to build, burn down the house. Mm-hmm. And you have to choose which you're going to let burn and which you're going to put out. And so in the early days, it is sometimes like whack-a-mole. Uh, and you're just constantly trying to, okay, let's put out this problem. Let's put out this problem. But if you, it, it comes back to the conviction you have around who you are as a company and what your product is. So when it came to handling the customer facing roles, one of the things that I focused early in on was, was customer service, providing customers with a great experience and the knowledge you can get about, okay, who's using our products successfully? Where's this resonating? Uh, Who is our core beachhead market, that ideal customer profile? And starting to understand that and taking those lessons to direct product development and creating that that conduit between the voice of the customer and your engineers and designers, but also starting to identify those pattern matches around who is really into your product and then using those lessons to drive business development, drive sales and strategic partnerships and your positioning. And so early on, and, and I, this wasn't intentional, it was, it was really just based on need, uh, but I found <clears throat> a lot of value in that case. And then certainly, as, uh, as I mentioned, I was mainly focused on, on the customer experience and on the go-to-market side at, at that time. So <clears throat> I do think that there is a need to at least focus in on what you're going to, what core competency you're going to develop. Okay. And then the rest just kind of comes up based on need. Yep. Uh, and then that's where you come in uh, for that, that mentorship. And again, dating back to 2007, that, that first cohort of, of Techstars, the whole purpose of Techstars was to create that network that you could rely on and go towards when you, you needed that help. So what do you think the core competency is that you're working on developing then right now? What would that be? Or what has it been? That's a phenomenal question. I'd say that the interesting thing about Time Doctor is that we're 150 people spread across 40 plus countries. And while automatic was and continues to be distributed in those early days, a good portion were in the United States, but time doctor was founded by an Australian living in the Philippines. And so of those 150, there are only 12 of us in the United States. Wow. And those are recent additions. So the core competency that, I've been developing is really around interacting with different cultures, which can be vastly different if you're interacting with folks from the Philippines versus folks from Ukraine or uh, South America. And the 
challenge is around communication and making sure that you are conveying a message that resonates across the entire company. And it's, it's easy to fall into the trap of, of speaking to uh, North Americans versus changing how you interact and, and how you speak to folks from the rest of the world. And so while I thought that I had this huge tool belt of, of how to work remotely, here I am at, at Time Doctor 13 years in and I'm learning something new. Yeah. And the, the core competency, so, so that has been exceedingly important and a real learning experience for me. Beyond that, it has been taking what I've seen work at Automatic and applying it to a company going through explosive growth. Time Doctor's been around for over a decade now wow. and really started, it really started to pick up momentum as a, uh, it's always been a tool for remote teams. But when the world went remote, I mean, this is, this is a trend that we've been seeing gaining speed over the past decade. And then suddenly there's 10, 10 years of remote work adoption over the course yeah, of a month. Quantum, quantum leap. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. And yeah. so the challenges around, around very quickly operationalizing a company that has been used to operating at a certain level, but is now 200% bigger in terms of a customer base, the, the competency that I've been working on a lot has been around change management. Interesting. You're, I'm kind of over your shoulder. I see my favorite book, um, Atlas Shrugged in the, in the background. And I would imagine that most of your global team have not read Atlas Shrugged. Is, is top grading on that same shelf? It looks like top grading. Uh, might... <clears throat> no, it's no? not. I'm not, I'm not a, quite sure. A gray it, it's a mix one. of, yeah, it's a mix of spy novels, um, <laughs> spy novels, business books, random random things. I've got a book on fish. So it's uh, an eclectic mix. That's cool. For sure. All right. I want to go back to the, um, the, the, the part where you were in this, the COO role now for your second time. What do you think you got right the second time around? What do you think now, you know, the COO at Time Doctor, you're doing better than maybe the first time around? Yeah, absolutely. When I went in, so the first COO role was gradual adoption. Mm -hmm. I had been used to operating within a company. Now I'm going into a very established company that has a certain operating cadence and operating system that has worked for it, but now maybe needs to change slightly and, and mature and, and move into something that can support uh, scaling a team and setting the company up for the future. In terms of what's different this time around, I, I hit up a mentor when I first started and I said, look, mm -hmm. I'm coming into this company. It's getting huge adoption, huge growth. It has this 
history of, of not necessarily having the DNA that you would expect in a U.S. tech company. So there are very different ways of, of operating. What would you do in my situation? And he said, listen, it can seem overwhelming. It can seem like a big operation and a lot to do, but it is f- all about four words. Who does what when? Figure that out. Go department by department, see, map the machine, <clears throat> and you're going to start to see what's working well and what needs to maybe change. And I found that to be somewhat calming, a, calm, a calming mantra <laughs> that I have uh, taped on my monitor here, which is along with a, a number of other things. <laughs> uh, but uh, who does what when? And, and I'm sure my team is, is quite sick of, of hearing that from me. And that has been highly instructive and, and really just things can seem so complicated, but at the end of the day, they're really quite simple. You just mm-hmm. have to break it down to its simplest form. So like I'd say that. that that's, yeah, I'd say that that's one of the, one of the things that I got right this time around. Um, Certainly there have been missteps, but the other aspect has been making sure we have the right people in the right seats. Yeah. Always critical for sure. I love what you're doing with Time Doctor. At our uh, one of our last COO Alliance events, we actually did an exercise called an activity inventory, which is kind of related to, we, we pretended that people had videoed themselves for a month and wrote down everything they did on the video camera, or like, you know, recorded everything and then tried to categorize all the stuff as to whether they're incompetent, competent, unique ability, you know, and, um, and tried to help them get some stuff off their plate. And it was a really unique exercise because people often look at what they're doing, but they don't look at the, the waste in terms of money. Like if you're paying a COO, you know, 250 grand a year, you're paying them 125 bucks an hour. Why are they doing $30 an hour jobs? You know, it's like you're paying them eight times that that should be off their plate real quick. All right. I want to go back to the, the 20, 21, 22 year old Mike Koenigs and you're kind of graduating college and and you've got to reach out to a mentor who's, who's the current you. What advice would you give your younger self that you know to be true today? Ooh, that's a, that's a doozy. Um, One of the things that, another thing that I have taped on my monitor here is to stop and think. I think when I was younger, I would race to do something quickly. And one of the things that I've learned is that something may seem pressing, but it's going to be there tomorrow. Mm. And you don't need to rush to get it done. There are very few instances in which you absolutely need to rush to get something done. And that's something that I it's on my monitor because I continue to remind myself and it's always something that I'm, I'm working on because as someone who uh, is very action oriented, it's very easy to make the wrong decision. And while there are always benefits 
to learning from that wrong decision, sometimes those can be very costly mistakes. And so stop, think, don't rush. What will the ramifications be further down the line? Or is this really important? We may have a, a very large customer saying, screaming for something, but if you rush to meet that need, but you don't step back and look at it in the larger context of the business that you're building and the product that you're building, you might make the wrong decision and, and start to steer the company down a pretty costly path. Well, and often you can fix that one issue for the one customer, but you don't solve the root problem. So now it's being created for nine other customers the next week. Like you haven't actually solved the issue. You just took care of it for one person. Yeah, absolutely. Mike Koenigs, the chief operating officer at Time Doctor. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, very appreciative of your time. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.